This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi, Sitting in the Fire 4, was given at the Fresh Breeze Meditation Retreat at the Sangre de Cristo Center in Tezuque, New Mexico, on July 11, 2011. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. <laughs> One of the ways we talk about things is a sense that we are all falling together through this universe and for the time being for these decades we're falling together through this world in particular and um, we may have started the fall at different times but we've joined up now to fall together for a while and then One by one, each of us will fall out of the bottom of this world and into whatever the next thing is. So within that long arc of falling together, there are segments. And um, one of the segments of the arc is when we fall through the bottom of our ordinary lives and our relationships into this world, the world of retreat where we fall into something that's quite rare, I think, in life, which is um, being completely alone to a depth that is otherwise uncommon in the presence of others. That's maybe one of the most um, remarkable things about this thing we do together. And then, at a certain point... Um, sometime tomorrow, I reckon, we will fall out of the bottom of that aloneness in the presence of others back into our uh, regular lives, our, uh, the rest of our lives and our relationships. Sometimes that uh, transition can be bumpy. And so to help us not feel as though we're hitting like a a canopy over a window at every floor as we go down. Um, I thought maybe we would let the poets bring us home tonight in making that transition. So the first poet I'd like to to bring in is uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, who we read as part of our afternoon reading, um, and who is the great poet, I think, of a particular kind of aloneness known to us in meditation. And he said about it, what you really need is simply this, aloneness, great inner solitude, to go within and for hours not to meet anyone. That is what one needs to attain. And then he said that if you do this, um, something happens. The individual person who senses her aloneness, and only she, is like a thing subject to the deep laws, the cosmic laws. So the sense that if we can go in and, um, and be truly alone in this vast inner solitude, what we meet there are the deep laws, the cosmic laws, what we might call the Tao. And we can come into a direct relationship with that Tao, with the Tao, unconditioned by circumstances. So there's a... Polish poet 
named Anna Sphere. And Margot read her words last night as the ancestor, ancestor's words. She's the one who wrote the poem about carrying light and silence. She has a deceptively simple style and is often writing about very large things like carrying inside light and silence. And this is another of her poems like that, which has the quality of what happens when we are down there in that deep inner solitude and finding ourselves coming into relationship with the deep laws, with the Tao. An empty day without events. Well, theoretically, a day in a retreat is like that. An empty day without events. And that is why it grew immense as space. And suddenly, the happiness of being entered me. I heard in my heartbeat the birth of time and each instant of life, one after the other, came rushing in like priceless gifts. So that way that time can slow down and we can feel the rhythms of the world in each heartbeat. And that, that when time slows down, then the moments return to us um, moment by moment. And we're aware of each one as a particular gift. This way that we're alone together, um, that we are in such a, a profound profoundly deep solitude in the presence of each other. Um, Rilke talked about and said that one of the greatest things we can do for each other is to be guardians of each other's solitude. And that certainly seems to me to be one of the best descriptions of what we do together in a retreat, that we agree to be guardians of each other's solitude. Um, sometimes I, I have an image of, um, do you remember those, those old-fashioned diving suits where they had the, like the big round helmets and the sort of space suits? And they'd go down connected to a line, to a breathing, and there would be a sort of group of people at the surface make, doing something that made the, the oxygen go down. Kind of like that. We do that for each other. Um, we might say in the language we're developing together as we develop a, a culture that we accompany each other in the way that we understand that, which is that we are willing to take the risk to simply walk next to each other and to be there no matter what happens. The image I think of there is, um, is from the the ancient Greek and Roman world, there was a, um, a mystery religion that had a ceremony every year at Eleusis in, in Greece. And the ceremony went on for over a thousand years. And pilgrims came from all over the, the, the Mediterranean world, which meant Europe and, and, um, and um, Palestine and North Africa and Asia beyond that. And it would take them sometimes months to walk to where they would join the pilgrimage. So it was as if there were these rivulets of people walking all over Europe and Asia and North Africa that would join into these larger streams and finally into a river walking across Greece toward the um, mysteries of, of Demeter at Eleusis. And although 
the mystery went on for a thousand years. The participants were sworn to secrecy and no one ever told in a thousand years. No one ever told what happened inside. Um, Sophocles called Eleusis the sheltered plain where all are welcome. And um, that's another way I think about what we do. We come together from our individual um, European nations and North African countries and Central Asian kingdoms and, and walk together. And there are, there's no enforced orthodoxy in what we do, but we walk together to Eleusis. Um, and the last, the last uh, image I wanted to give of this alone together is um, I got, for probably obvious reasons, really interested in the, the hermits in China in the, the periods we're talking about when we're, we're talking with in, in the koans. And I wanted to know what their lives were like because so many of the koans talk about someone heading off into the mountains and, and becoming a hermit for a while. And what was that like? What was the texture of that, that life? And um, I was um, made to laugh and delighted to discover that if these people were hermits, they were hermits in very lively neighborhoods because it turned out that there were these mountains all over China that were famous for hermits. And so, you know, you might have like 500 or 1,000 <laughs> hermits on, on a particular mountaintop at, at any time. And um, and they, they met and talked and got together for... Um, tea and wine and moon viewing and um, leaf appreciating and whatever else whatever else it was they did but then they could you know retreat back into and I thought that's my idea you know of the hermit's life give me give me a a life like that on a beautiful mountain with 500 or a thousand other people as crazy as I am how wonderful um, and it also it made me think of of um, Another thing that made me laugh so much, which is the, the great um, Christian mystic of England, uh, Julian of Norwich, who, when she went into, um, into her solitude, into her, her hermitage, took her housekeeper and her dog with her. <laughs> um, one, one, of the, one of the things that's, that's you know, marked about those, those hermits in China was that um, if you decide, if you chose that life, if you chose to be on one of those mountains, all of the distinctions that were so powerful in the rest of Confucian society, distinctions of gender and class and education, absolutely disappeared, just didn't exist. What, what bound people together, what connected them, what brought them into relationship was something entirely different, which was something like that desire to, in the presence of each other, touch the deep laws of the universe. Um, in this inner solitude, in this walking for hours and, and meeting no one, we have talked this week about how part of that process is, is a purification. And I know some of you have mentioned to me that you felt a kind of purifying process going on this week, particularly in the light of the fires. And um, if you sit long enough, if you spend enough time in that great inner solitude, you're not going to be able to come in at the moment. You're going to be revealed to yourself. You can't, you can't not be revealed to yourself. 
and and that's part of the purification is that that utter um, encounter with with oneself and we talked about purification as having two aspects one being the kind of clearing out aspect the the deconstruction the 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 sweeping away whatever it is that gets in the way between us and a genuine um, relationship with the world and with the vastness so here's a here's a poem about that kind of purification that deconstruction or clearing out and this is by um, a 12th century teacher of Taoism, a woman named Sun Bu Er. And um, some of you will be happy to know that, that her Taoist name Bu Er means not too. <laughs> so this is, um, this is called Cut Brambles Long Enough by Not Too. Cut brambles long enough, sprout after sprout, and the lotus will bloom of its own accord. Already waiting in the clearing, the single image of light. The day you see this, that day you will become it. That's Jane Hirschfield's lucid translation. The other thing we, we the other way we've talked about purification is as a making whole. Um, a bringing in that which has been exiled or cast into the shadows or turned away from to bring all when we when we really see ourselves we see all of ourselves and we bring that in and that that making whole of what has been denied is also a kind of purification so uh, in Japan in the 11th century when when Zen was first coming there um, a woman named Izumi Shikibu wrote Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. An important part of this process of purification and coming to see all of ourselves is compassion. Um, And really because... Compassion is essential to our integrity, and it is the gift we make that we can then take back into the world, that our integrity comes in part out of our compassion, and that's what we take back. And I say that because um, if we have compassion for ourselves as we walk in this inner solitude and we do this work of purification, then we're not going to hesitate to include anything and that means our integrity is all the stronger and all the greater because we don't have to leave anything out if there is a warm heart in the pro- in our process if there are um, if there is a warm regard for the work we're doing and a sense of tenderness toward even the most painful parts of ourselves we will more easily include them, which will um, make us stronger and more complete integrity. We really develop a deep knowing of the self, where we shine and where we're shadowed. The other great gift of compassion is that it can turn what can be... um, extremely serious work 
into something that has a, a light quality, even a humorous quality. And this is a this is a poem about how self-knowledge can turn into a kind of affectionate humor. This is Wisława Zimborska, who is another Polish poet, also of Anna Sphere's generation, a great generation of Polish poets, um, if you want to check them out. This is uh, her poem called Could Have. It could have happened. It had to happen. It happened earlier, later, nearer, farther off. It happened, but not to you. You were saved because you were the first. You were saved because you were the last. Alone, with others, on the right, the left. Because it was raining, because of the shade, because the day was sunny. You were in luck, there was a forest. You were in luck, there were no trees. You were in luck, a rake, a hook, a beam, a jam, a turn, a quarter inch, an instant. You were in luck. Just then, a straw floated by. As a result, because, although, despite, what would have happened if a hand, a foot, within an inch, a hair's hair's breadth from an unfortunate coincidence? So you're here, still dizzy from another dodge, close shave, reprieve, one hole in the net and you slip through? I couldn't be more shocked or speechless. Listen, how your heart pounds inside me. I love that, the way she evokes the stories. You know, isn't that so much what it's like? You were saved because you were first. You were saved because you were last. You were in luck. There was a forest. You were in luck. There were no trees. As a result, because, although, despite. So um, the way that, that uh, Zimborska ends her poem, listen how your heart pounds inside me, um, will bring us then to where we begin to fall out of that solitude and back into re- new relationship, a new kind of relationship. Um, that moment where we turn from that inward Uh, exploration of self back to the world. So this is a a bit of a poem by Louise Gluck called, uh, the poem's called Prism, and it's about that, that moment of turn. List the implications of crossroads. Answer, a story that will have a moral. List the implications of crossroads. Answer, a story that will have a moral. If you've got a crossroads, you're going to have a moral. Give a counterexample. And here's her counterexample. The self ended and the world began. They were of equal size, commensurate. One mirrored the other. So as we... um, as we step back from that inner solitude into the world, we find that we are still um, accompanied with any luck by the people who have witnessed our solitude. And um, how are we to go on with each other? What comes next? What's the next thing? There's a, a beautiful word in the Buddhist 
uh, tradition. In Sanskrit, it's Kalyanamitra. And um, it means a spiritual friend. And it seems to me to be the, the, one of the best ways we can talk about how that relationship evolves as we step out of the retreat and back into the world together. We can be for each other Kalyanamitras, spiritual friends. And that idea of friendship includes um, both, um, both companionship and also guidance so that we, in our um, way of speaking, switch from host to guest back and forth in our relationships with each other. That's what Kalyanamitras do. One plays host, one plays guest, and then it switches. And, and each is taking the other role. And on and on and on it goes. Um, one of my favorite definitions of, of Kalyanamitra is actually the, the Zen view of it, which is good friends kindly disposed. So may we, um, may we remain good friends kindly disposed to each other. We have that relationship with each other, and we also bring out of the inner solitude with any luck uh, an ongoing relationship with the ancestors. So here's a quick uh, koan or story from the ancestors about the ancestors. Nanchuan asked his assembly, tomorrow we will pay homage to great master Ma, who is dead, and it's the tradition once a year on, on the anniversary to pay homage to the founder of the temple. Nanchuan was his successor. So tomorrow, on the anniversary of his death, we will pay homage to great master Ma, who founded this temple. Do you think he will return or not? When nobody else spoke, young Dungshan came forward and said, he will come as soon as he has a companion. So part of our task is to be that companion that let the ancestors come back and accompany us. We talked about um, bodhicitta last night, about the um, the passionate desire to awaken in order to create the circumstances in which all beings can awaken. And that another way to talk about that, um, that rising of bodhicitta is, is that it's the beginning of the birth of a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva begins to be born as soon as bodhicitta arises. And then that that's, that's a, um, that part of it is a solitary event. That's something between you and you, you know, or you and whatever you, you want to make it between. But it's really, it's, we do that one by one by one. We, we um, decide to put bodhicitta at the center of our lives one by one, and we begin that birth of the bodhisattva. But then that birth is midwived by our family, our friends, our loved ones, our community, our co-workers, and our sangha. So it's another way in which um, we do something very deep in the presence of each other, and we can accompany each other as we do that. I wanted to just say something briefly and kind of parenthetically because it came up a little bit today in my conversations with you. 
which was about how much if we do put bodhicitta at the center of our lives, how much are we signing up for a life of tireless, selfless service. And I wanted to talk for a moment about that sense of selfless service because I think maybe we have an idea from some of the ways that it's it's evolved in the West that it's a kind of self-abnegation. You know, it's a kind of, um, that there's a kind of destruction of self or a, or a complete annihilation of self in the service of others. And that's, everybody kind of goes, you know, I'm not sure I'm ready to, to sign up for that. So I want to suggest that in the context of bodhicitta and the bodhisattva vow, when we're talking about selfless service, we are talking about service in which the self is not at the center. That's what it means. And since we're talking about living lives in which the self is not at the center, actually the service that grows out of that is a natural growth from the kind of life we're choosing to live anyway and doesn't mean that we pay no mind of um, the needs of the particular organism given into our care, this one called Joan, that one called Margot, um, but just that that those needs are all are not always the first mouth fed, that they're in the chorus, but they're not singing a solo. Um, and um, so that when we think about you know acting compassionately or acting in service. What we're doing is acting compassionately or in service to the whole situation, which includes ourselves. We're part of the situation we are serving. We are part of the situation um, that we're acting compassionately toward. Um, the, the promise of living a life that is attentive to others in that way is um, to me beautifully expressed in this poem by one of our beat ancestors Michael McClure if we if we are willing to live um, listening to the world with attention to the other beings of the world it might be something like this this is his poem each mammal each mammal does a small, perfect thing like to be himself or herself and to hold a new creation on a shining platter as he or she steps toward the waiting car. Each mammal does a small, perfect thing like to be himself or herself and to hold a new creation on a shining platter as he or she steps toward the waiting car. Isn't that gorgeous, Tenny? <laughs> okay, so that's all um, well and good, my girl, you might say. But what about the, um, the, um, the bump of returning to the world? You know, how about when it's not so easy? How do, we, um, how do we deal with that? 
how do we avoid thinking of the world as something that's um, lying in wait to trap us? <laughs> Just over there on Sunday afternoon. But rather as something that's um, awaiting our awakening. Whether we bring it on a silver platter like Michael McClure's mammals um, with us from the retreat or whether we bring the ongoing unfolding of that awakening back into the world from this place. What would it be like if we saw the world like that, awaiting our awakening? This is a traditional Inuit song. And I thought over again my small adventures as with a shore wind I drifted out in my kayak and thought I was in danger. My fears, these small ones that I thought so big for all the vital things I had to get and reach. And yet there is only one great thing, the only thing, to live to see in huts and in journeys the great day that dawns and the light that fills the world. If you remain unconvinced and you're still worried about what awaits, I invite you to soak in everything you can these last hours, this evening, tonight, overnight, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon. Soak in everything, the stillness, the silence, the presence of your companions, your breath, And remember that it's our custom to sit up late tonight so you can sit up all night long soaking the air that has been created in this room, the thick presence of all of this deep inner solitude, all of this um, sincere work, all of the openness and the beauty and the pain faced and gone through that sits in this room. Let these moments that are left completely stain and dye you all the way through. Let them soak into you and stain and dye you so that the jostling of the world can't rub it off. When we're so completely stained by the vastness, when it goes all the way through and there's no way to rub it off anymore, then the world can stain us too, and we can be glad of it. Emily Dickinson wrote in a letter to a friend, Friday I tasted life. It was a vast morsel. A circus passed the house. Still, I feel the red in my mind. We can let the world stain our minds with its colors if we've been stained so thoroughly by the vastness that nothing can rub it off. And last, um, as a kind of prayer for the way all of us re-enter the world. This is a, a bit from Leonard Cohen's Beautiful Losers that he wrote in 1966. 
um, he was he was talking about what it means to be a saint, which we would call a bodhisattva. What is a saint? Saints don't dissolve the chaos of existence. If they did, the world would have changed long ago. That's really good to remember. (laughs) Saints don't dissolve the chaos of existence. If they did, the world would have changed long ago. I don't think that saints dissolve the chaos even for themselves. For there is something arrogant and warlike in the notion of someone setting the universe in order. It is a kind of balance that is the saint's glory. Something in them so loves the world that they give themselves to the laws of gravity and chance. Far from flying with angels, they trace with the fidelity of a seismograph needle the state of the solid, bloody landscape. Their houses are dangerous and finite, but they are at home in the world. They can love the shape of human beings, the fine and twisted shapes of the heart. It is good to have among us such people, such balancing monsters of love. May we all be, as much as we can, alone and together, balancing monsters of love. Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.